those of you not familiar with Scripture, Romans is in the back of the Bible, after Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, the Gospels and Acts. There's a major book of Paul we've been looking at, and we're back in a series looking at Romans and what it means to live on the edge of grace. We're starting in verse 16. Paul has been talking about the distinct way that we are justified with God in the courtroom of God. It's not by working and trying harder with the law of God and trying to please God ourselves. No, justification comes not by the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And so he continues in verse 16 saying, That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, and in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he, that is Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made, made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead our Lord Jesus, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Well, sometimes things don't work at least the way you'd hope they would work. Sometimes they work out better. Three or four summers ago, some friends of ours invited us to join them at the Rascal Flats concert at Verizon Wireless Amphitheater here in Charlotte. We arrived early together to see the opening acts, and our friends got us actually pretty good seats if you've ever been out there. We we're sitting about 30, 40 rows back under the over, overhang of the amphitheater, not on the, on the back hill with all the grass. And when the concert started, um, I have to admit, it was hard to see what was going on, even on the stage from where we were, since we had sound and lighting equipment for the concert right in front of us. And then it got stranger. A family walked up and said we were sitting in their seats. We checked our tickets, they checked their tickets, we checked theirs, they checked ours, and sure enough, they were identical. Meanwhile, the, the next act came on, and while that was happening, uh, an usher came up and started talking to us about this conflict of, uh, of how two people had the same seats. As a result, he asked us to walk away uh, while the other family took the seats we were in, and he walked us out to the walkway that goes between the grassy area and the seats with the overhang. And he asked us to stay and to wait there while he sought out more seats that we might be able to sit in. So we stood there, 
awkwardly as the concert went on. Darius Rucker came on before that was Love and Theft. And then Rascal Flats came on. We waited for 15 minutes, for 30 minutes. We waited for about 45 minutes with all these guys coming on, standing there, having a hard time seeing what was going on and wondering and waiting for our seats, wondering if we'd actually get to see the concerts while we waited and we waited and we waited and we waited. You know, life is a lot like this, where we all have hopes for the future. We want God's blessing in our lives as Christians, or even if you don't follow Christ, you want your life to end up well. And we feel like we're often, in the meantime, waiting for those good blessings, left standing out in the aisle, waiting for our hopes to come together. And we begin to wonder while we're waiting, was what was once promised really going to come to fruition? That brings us to our real question for today in our text of Romans chapter 4. How can we obtain the blessings that God has promised? as Christians, or really, how can we obtain what God says we should hope for, even as we live this life waiting in the aisle? Well, Paul's answer to these questions has been pretty clear already in our text over the last four chapters of Romans. Paul has said, the truth is, we can't do anything to obtain the promises and blessings of God on our own, except for one thing. In the first three chapters, Paul has said, you can't work for God's blessing. You can't get it right with God enough because God's standard for being blessed, and according to the law at least, was this. You get it right 100% of the time. The nature of the law is this. Do this or die. That's what it says. Paul makes an argument that because we are sinners and have a bent towards not living for God, we are all disqualified from God's lasting eternal blessing on our own merits. God's law says do this or die, and none of us can do it, so we all are worthy of death. But there is one exception. One thing that can help us to get in the blessings of God. And Paul has highlighted that in chapter 3 and chapter 4 at length. And it is the way of God's grace, where God actually gives us a free gift, something we don't deserve, and he gives us that free gift through the salvation that is purchased in Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus gets it right for us. That's what the gospel said. Out of God's own compassion, he sent Christ to justify us, is what the scripture says. In the courtroom of God, we can stand just as if we'd never sinned and just as if we were holy and righteous before God because all that Christ has done for us. Now, at some point, all religions say, yeah, 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 right, 
I mean, God's doing something. Yeah, yeah, right, whatever. But we got to bring something to the table with God to get his blessings. Well, Paul says, well, there is one way you receive God's blessings indeed, but it's really a surprising, even ironic way to receive God's blessings, and it's this. It's faith, a passive act that actually relies on another and not self. That's the very nature of faith. You believe in someone else, and in this case, Jesus himself and what he's accomplished for us. In Ephesians, goes, Paul goes on and surprises us. He says that, he goes so far as to say that this faith that we practice, this active passivity of receiving from God, even that's a gift, a free gift from God. So we really can't take credit for even our faith on some level. And in Romans 4, Paul really drives home that to gain what we hope for, we have to have a certain kind of faith, saving faith in Jesus Christ. Paul has been saying in our text that there is someone who has actually led the way and illustrated what it means to rely on what God does and not on what he does in order to receive the blessing of God. In fact, he is the prototypical believer of Scripture, and his name is Abraham. The whole chapter of chapter 4 is about Abraham. Now, here's the, the funny thing about Abraham. Abraham was a pagan. He wasn't a believer until he was 75 years old. He was a pagan who came out of Ur the Chaldees. And what the Scripture says is that God moved towards Abraham and chose him and loved him and changed his life by entering into his world and calling him to follow. God's grace turned him into a believer along with his wife Sarah. And Abraham was blessed with this faith so that he did follow the God of the universe. Now, why does that matter? Well, look at verse 16 of our text. Look what it says. This, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Now, there it is. Paul is basically saying that the righteousness that was necessary for Abraham to enjoy God's blessing couldn't come from the law because Abraham could never get it right enough. If God's standard of the law is 100% of the time in thought, word, and deed, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor yourself, who can live up to that? But the beauty of it is Paul is saying, no, no, no. There had to be a righteousness that came from someone else that would get Abraham in with God so that God might bless him. And that righteousness came from Jesus Christ. It was, in other words, Jesus Christ, the Christ that Abraham looked forward to, that gave him hope. So, two things happen out of this truth from our text in verse 16. It says, the promise therefore rests on grace, not on, on Abraham's fulfillment of the law. It rests on God's free gift given to him that's even the opposite of what he deserved. Now, some of you who are just new to Redeemer... Here's our working definition of grace. Justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. 
Grace is a free gift given by God that is the opposite of what you deserve because of what Christ has accomplished. Now, there is a second blessing he mentions in here, a second thing that happened as a result of God basing his promise on grace and not on the works of the law. And it's this. The second one says, the promise could be guaranteed to all of the offspring of Abraham. Now, what does he mean by that? What is he talking about offspring? Is he talking about offspring, uh, Abraham's children? Well, we know early on Abraham had no children, right? For the longest time in his life, he had no children. Who is Abraham's family? Well, we know that according to Romans 2, to be Jewish, to be an Israelite, to be a part of that original family that Abraham started back thousands of years ago, you have to be a Jew inwardly, not just externally. In other words, it's not your ethnicity, where you're born and all that stuff, or who your parents were. There is an inward spirituality and a difference inside that makes a difference. What's the difference? Galatians 3 makes it even clear. Those who believe in Christ, those who have faith in the one true God who saves and not in ourselves, that's the child of Abraham. It's faith that makes us Israelites. So you know what this means, right? You're a Jew, if you call yourself a Christian. You're a spiritual Jew. You're a spiritual Israelite, if you call Jesus Lord. Now, why does this make a difference, and why does Paul highlight this whole idea? Well, he goes even further in our text with a big application of this when he says in verse uh, 16, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares their faith in Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. What's he talking about? Well, this is the surprise of the Bible all the way through. In the Bible, you expect God to have a group of people that are his people, and he focuses on uh, primarily and only deals with them. That's the way kind of regional gods worked back in the ancient Near East, dare I say, even Roman times. But what it's saying here is that Abraham, by virtue of his connection with his children by faith, actually would be the father of many nations, of many kinds of people. Why is Paul saying this? It's really simple. Paul is challenging the latent tribalism that shows up in church. We are prone to think that God is for us and our kind of people. Uh, that God can really only, God will only come through and obtain the hopes, if you will, of us. And us could be categorized as nationality, could be categorized as race, socioeconomic class, generations, music preference, politics, you name it. We people will come up with all kinds of ways to say God is in with us. But Paul is saying, look, with this grace through faith, they ain't know us about it. The only us is those who trust in Christ alone, who are saying, hey, there's nothing about me inherently or nothing I can do that makes me one of us with God. It's all about what God has done for me. 
in Christ. You know that's what you have in common with your fellow Christians? We're all saved by grace through faith. None of us can say, well, you know, I'm in with God in a unique and special way over and above you because of this experience or that experience or this nationality or this preference. We're all children of Abraham because we have a common need, Jesus Christ. The old way of saying it is this. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Now, here's a problem that comes up in everything. In all this, we say, okay, so you have to have faith in Christ like to be a child of Abraham, but what kind of faith are we talking about? I mean, everybody says believe. When I was growing up in the 80s, one of my favorite songs was uh, George Michael. You know, you got to have faith, faith, faith. I got to have faith, right? Remember that? Yeah, you're trying to forget it. I understand. George Michael talks about faith. People talk about faith all the time. Oh, yeah, I believe. I mean, here in the Bible Belt, it's like really common. Oh, yeah, I believe. And they'll even say sometimes, I believe in Jesus. But what kind of faith are we talking about that makes this kind of faith that Abraham had so unique? Well, the answer begins with the peculiar way Paul describes the God of Abraham in verse 17 of our text. Look at this in verse 17. Okay, he's just said, Abraham's the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. But look at this. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Did you hear that? There are three things he highlights there. God, the God who is present, who is very present. He's not a way up there where we can never connect with him. He's very real. He's close. Number two, the God who gives life to the dead. And then three, the God who, who calls into existence the things that do not exist. A shorthand way to say it. God is near God makes dead things live. God makes something of nothing. That's the God we're talking about. Paul is highlighting these truths in a unique way because our God is different than all the other gods. You all need to know that. That in our age, and especially a pluralistic nation, post-Christian, post-modern, post-post-post-everything, you need to know that there are going to be lots of gods in our culture They will claim to be the God and may even be confused with our God. But when somebody invokes God or even Jesus, you need to get used to asking the question, which God? Which Jesus? The Jesus of the Bible? The Jesus of cultural imagination? The Jesus who we really want him to be rather than the untamable Jesus who he really is. Three things are highlighted about this Jesus here in this text. This God, he's close. Don't you get it, guys? Throughout history, the gods that have been come up through cultures over and again have been distant gods, like a distant father you never see. Maybe he shows up at home once in a while, but you never really engage him. That's the God that most know. 
I never get to, to talk with him or be with him. He just seems way out there somewhere. Christianity says, no, this God comes close. He comes near. He wants to be in relationship with you, with presence. Second thing it talks about is how not only is he a God who's close, he's a God who overcomes death. He, he actually has the power to, to overcome death, our final enemy, the thing that seems so scary at points for many of us. And not only that, this God can make something from nothing. You realize the universe, according to Christianity, once didn't exist. Now, God is eternal. He's always been around. Father, Son, Holy Spirit have always been around. But God created the universe from nothing. Some say it's the Big Bang. We say, who pulled the trigger? God is able to do these things. Funny thing about this is sociologist Christian Smith has recently come out with a study about today's young people. And he paints the God that today's young people articulate as they reflect about God. And they say this, he, that this God of our culture is a therapeutic, moralistic, deistic God. Those are fancy words, but therapeutic is they make us feel good about ourselves. A moralistic, they do empower us to point fingers at e other people and our, our culture is loaded with judgmentalism. It's not just coming from the Christians. It's coming from the non-Christians. And deistic. The deistic God is the God who's way out there and who never connects with where we are in life. But Christianity says, no, he's near. And he overcomes the darkest things and has power beyond our wildest dreams. In other words, Paul is presenting a radically different God, the God of Abraham, who can do great things. Now, why is Paul telling us this about this God in this verse in verse 17 and 18? Well, it's because he wants us to focus on this God for saving faith, not a general God or a fuzzy God. You know, that's the case with most Americans. If you ask them what's their definition of God, they'd say, hmm, He's a, he's a nice guy, he's, he really looks out for me, he takes care of me. And you know, those are all true, that's not all, that's not all bad. The problem with, with it is often this, it's just a truncated version of God. It doesn't even come close to accurately depicting who God is. Now let me ask you, if I was to come up to you and say, who are you? You'd say, well, this is me, this is where I come from, this is my characteristics, this is what I like in life, and all this stuff, just kind of this robust view. But so many Americans, and dare I say many Christians, have a real truncated view of God. We don't think of him as the God who makes dead things live, who is bigger than even the universe itself. The, the wonderful thing that Paul is challenging us to is to consider the quality of our faith what we really believe in, because even the devils believe in God, and they tremble at his name. So that brings us to the question, what does saving faith look like? What does real quality faith look like? Well, how do we have faith, in other words, that helps us attain the promises of God? Well, look no further than Abraham in verse 18 of our text. Look at this. It says this, 
in hope he, that is Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Paul shows us about the quality of saving faith by showing us Abraham. Abraham was this historic guy who lived about 4,000 years ago, around 2000 B.C. And we know right off the bat about Abraham back in Genesis that he was a childless man. When he was 75 years old, and when his wife Sarah was 65 years old, God promised him that he would have a child. (laughs) Can you imagine that? Being 75 years old and hearing from God after you start to believe in him, you're going to have a child. Now, guys, at 75, he was beyond retirement. He had already moved into a low-maintenance community at the edge of the Ur of the Chaldees. He was actually already playing golf every Thursday with his buddies. He was thinking about living the twilight of his years. And God says to a childless man, you're going to have a son. Not only that, he says this with Sarah nearby. Sarah's long past the change. She's thinking about, well, it would have been great if I could have been a grandmother at this point. And God's talking about her being a mother. You see how crazy this Saul seems at first glance? Abraham, nevertheless, believed God at his promise and believed that God could and was able to give what he promised to Abraham. Now, at this point, all of us say, well, we know the rest of the story. He ended up having a baby. Yeah, he got what he wanted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I say, not so fast. Not so fast. You're skipping an awful lot of Abraham's story. In fact, years passed, and in Genesis 15, uh, Abraham was kind of getting tired of waiting and asked God, so like, you promised me a few years ago that we were gonna, I was gonna ha- we were going to have a child, and you know, I'm not getting any younger. I'm well past 75 at this point. Is there any time in which this baby's going to come? And God said, well, yep. I promise you, you will have a child. In fact, I want you to go outside, and I want you to look into the night sky and look at the stars. See how the numbers of those stars are just countless? So shall your offspring be. There's another promise of God. So Abraham took him at his word. And and as a result, he keeps going with his life with Sarah. Then the waiting got more difficult. In Genesis 16, when Abraham was 86 years old, that's 11 years after the first promise, Sarah gets impatient. She wanted that child, so she comes up with a plan and brings in her servant Hagar to have relations with Abraham so they could have a surrogate child through a surrogate mother. Hagar had Ishmael, And the result was chaos in their family, jealousy, rivalry. It was a mess. Let me stop here and just say, 
when you're waiting in the aisle by faith and with hope with the Lord, there is always a fight and temptation to fix your pain, to get what you want now. Situations come up, and we want to offer our own solutions. Do not think that our impatience with God cannot get the best of us. Walking with God is a lot like walking on a narrow path in the mountains in the fog, where you're going through and you really can't see ahead what's going on, and you're following this narrow path that's a little scary, and you hear the voice of Jesus calling up ahead, and you're following him and walking, but you're like, oh, this is getting a little scary. I'm getting tired of waiting. I think I'm going to go my own path. That's the temptation when waiting on the Lord. Indeed, don't make shortcuts like Sarah and Abraham did with Hagar. It made a mess of their lives. Nevertheless, God is still true to his promise. Genesis 17 comes. The fog bank gets thicker. Yet God again promises Abraham that he will be a father of many nations. And in verse 17, 6 says, I'll bless you with a son. Abraham and Sarah were still waiting. Genesis 18 comes along. The angel of the Lord shows up personally to reaffirm the promise. Who's the angel of the Lord? The pre-incarnate Christ, Jesus. Showing up personally. Showing up with his presence in their lives. And while they're waiting, he says, The next year when I return you will have a child. Sarah is listening to this conversation between the angel of the Lord and Abraham, and she just busts out laughing, right. We've been waiting all this time. Yeah, right. It's been 24 years. In the next chapters after this, there's this strange moment where an angelic SEAL Team 4 goes in to Sodom and Gomorrah and extracts Lot and his family while God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. In other words, throughout all of this waiting, there's warfare, there's danger, there's risk of death. There's all kinds of hard stuff going on. And finally, in Genesis 21, God gives Abraham and Sarah a child. It's Isaac, whose name means he laughs. Because Abraham laughed when he first thought of, of a 7,500-year-old man having a baby. And certainly Sarah laughed thinking, no way, Jose, is that going to happen? What is extraordinary about a 90-year-old woman having a baby? Maybe that God is very present with her. God makes dead things like her womb live. God brings something of nothing. Let's review the story of Abraham. At this point when I te- of the story where I'm talking to you, it has taken 25 years for God to come through on his promise. Can you imagine that? God comes to you after you've longed for something your whole life and says, I'm going to give it to you. You're going to get it. 
It's coming your way. And my promise is gold. You can count on it. And then you believe, like, all right, Lord, I believe you. You're going to provide that thing that I'd long for the most in life. And then God waits for 25 years to give it to him. It gets crazier. In Genesis 22, what Richard read earlier, when Isaac was likely a teenager, God calls Abraham to sacrifice Isaac dead on an altar. Think about that. He's now received the thing he longed for the most. He's enjoying his son, even in really old age. And now God says, I want you to sacrifice him for me. God tests the childless man who has a child now for 25 years. And now he wants to take the child away. And you and I have to ask, what kind of God is this? Who gives a man and woman one of their deepest desires and then says, I want you to kill that desire. Is God a tease? Is God cruel? Even more amazing to us is, is Abraham crazy? Because he actually took Isaac up on the mountain and was ready to go for it all the way to the end? The answer is clear from our text in Romans. Abraham wasn't crazy. Abraham had saving faith. He had faith in a God who was present and fully engaged relationally. And this is key. Hebrews 11 tells us that Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son because he believed God makes dead things live. God could bring something from nothing. God had promised that Isaac would be the progeny through which a nation would come out of, even nations. So Abraham was willing to go through with the sacrifice because he believed God would resurrect his son. That's what he believed. Isaac would, would be the promise kept because God had the ability to keep his word even through resurrection. Now, the big question for us is this. What got Abraham through 25 years of waiting for the promise? What got him to where he was even willing to sacrifice his son? And the answer is saving faith. But it was a saving faith with a distinct quality. In fact, the key elements are saving, of saving faith are here in our text. Abraham's faith not only believed God was able to do the impossible, verse 20 says that he trusted God would keep his promise. He banked on what God said. i got to ask you guys, what do we bank our lives on in terms of words? Words matter. What do you really bank your life on? What words bring life to you? from God? Is it the promise of Scripture? Or is it the word of another that has nothing to do with Scripture? Not only that, is, is that the case, um, the second thing we show is in verse 21, the saving faith of Abraham was characterized by a conviction. He was convinced 
that God was able to do what he promised. When you think of God, do you think about him in his attributes, his characteristics, his infinite power, his infinite wisdom? And here's what I mean by wisdom. That even all the pain in the world that we experience works towards a greater redemptive purpose that we don't understand in our tiny little minds. Look at the cross as a supreme example of something that seems so awful at first glance, but when God gets a hold of it, turns it into something glorious. Are you convinced that God is the one who can give you life? The third thing that shows up in this text about true faith is simply this. It's hope. Do you know that hope is a future-looking faith? It's a kind of faith. It is a faith that says, I'm looking forward, and at the end of where I'm looking, I'll find the Lord. You know, in the Old Testament, the word, one of the words for hope is tikvah. And tikvah can mean to hope, expect, long for. But it also, in its noun form, can mean a cord. You know, like a cord of three strands is not easily broken. And it's as if the Old Testament authors use that cord imagery to show that at one end of the cord is the longings of our heart. At the other end of the cord, when you're really hoping in the Lord, is God himself. The thing you and I long for the most can always find its ultimate fulfillment in the Lord. That's why Scripture is chock full with the language of hope in the Lord. It's that future-looking faith that says, I will find my rest in you, O Lord. C.S. Lewis has this great um, story in his book, The, um, the Screwtape Letters. Those of you not familiar with Screwtape Letters, it's a it's, a, it's kind of an analogy that um, Lewis writes about what it's like to be in spiritual warfare with devils, and except this is from the devil's point of view. Screwtape is a senior devil, and he's writing letters to his junior devil, Wormwood. And in the process, he's giving advice, every letter, telling him how to discourage and, and knock down and beat down the Christian that Wormwood is working with. But there's this one point in the book where he says this amazing thing. He says, you know, Wormwood, we're never in more trouble as devils than when we are so oppressing a Christian that he looks all around and sees no sign of God and yet still believes. That's divine faith right there, guys. Real faith says... I don't see you, God. You're silent. You're quiet. I, don't, I feel your, I'm, your, your face is hidden. But I know you're there. Help me, Lord. I need you, Jesus. Where do you go in the dark moments? Do you run to something that makes you feel better? Do you run to something that makes you forget as a distraction? <laughs> that would be my favorite place to go. Scripture says, hope in the Lord. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Be convinced that he's real. You know why you can be convinced? Because he's alive. 
He's not a dead Christ. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. He was crucified, dead, and buried. We know that for sure. We also know for sure the tomb was empty. They never produced a body when it sure would have benefited the Jewish authorities, the Roman authorities, everybody in Christendom to find that body because they kept talking about the resurrected Jesus. The third thing that was true, there were 500 witnesses. 500. It's not two or three, because with two or three, you can do a conspiracy theory, right? Oh, well, they just kind of worked it all out, and they said he was alive. Oh, we'd love that in our Fox News world. No. What he was is living and breathing, and people saw him and encountered him. Even Paul, the apostle who wrote this letter, saw him living. There is infinite power in Christ. God makes dead things live, even his own son live. And God can make something of nothing. Are you willing to believe that about the God of the universe, this God in Scripture? Today, many of us are discouraged about life. We see some things in our world that seem so hard, so painful. Here's what I'd say. It's okay to lament. It's okay to hurt. It's okay to say it's not the way it's supposed to be. But don't stop there. Look to a resurrected Lord who is bigger than your problems, who is bigger than the world's problems, and who's going to come back one day and change everything. Everything. That's the Jesus you have to look for. That's the Jesus Paul is saying you have to bank your life on. The crucified and resurrected Christ who bled for your sin and was resurrected as a stamp of approval. This is what will last forever. So what? So what? What's this got to do with us in this room? Well, I would suggest for those of you who are not sure if you're a Christian or if you're really wrestling with wanting to know Jesus, here's what you must do. Romans 10, 9. <laughs> Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. You can bank on that. You can bank your life on that, on a resurrected Christ. Look to Scripture and what Scripture says about Jesus. Don't mess around with the cultural concepts and theories that show up on, uh, on cable television. Deal with the Jesus in Scripture and ask the right question. Did he really resurrect from the dead? For Christians who are here today and you're struggling with your faith, here's the way you go. You go back to your justification that started years ago when you first believed and remember that God loved you at that time and he loves you no less now, even in your struggles. It's not about your performance still. It is about what God has done for you fully and finally in Christ. Let that sink into your soul and it will change your life. You know how to change your life? Because you'll start to wrestle with Christ crucified and resurrected for you Yet again, it'll change everything. Don't settle for less 
in this world. God is close. God, the one true God, can make dead things live. This one true God can make something of nothing. In conclusion, the last I left you at our concert, we were there a few years ago standing out in the aisle wondering if we'd ever get to actually sit down and see the concert, standing, getting uncomfortable. It just was a little bit of a pain. Finally, a guy came to us. A guy came to us, and, and he said, Hey, I'm here to bring, take you to some seats. I've got a phone call from the, who, the guy who's running the whole thing. I'm going to take you to these seats. So he starts to walk us down to some pretty cool area that's a little closer than where we were before. And I thought, man, it's all right. We'll get a little closer seats. But he doesn't stop there. He goes into a whole different section that's uh, cordoned off. You couldn't get in very easily. You had to get in with special help. And he walks us down to the third row, right in front of the band, right in spitting distance of the lead singer. I mean, I could see the sweat on the guys as they were playing. Not only that, he had a couple of other seats to spread all of us out in. My wife and the women, well, they got the privileged place. They sat right in the front row seats, four of them, right there in front of the lead singer. You know, it was incredible that we were right there where it all was happening. And it reminded me that even though sometimes things don't work out the way we hope they will, often they work out much, much better, ultimately with a front row seat of the God of the universe in heaven. Don't get any better than that. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for being a resurrected Lord. There is no one like you. There is no one who loves us like you. There is no one who has gone to the nth degree to bleed and die for us, to give yourself up for us. There is no God and no story in all of history about a God who would do such sacrificial things for enemies. But you've done it. That's why you're different. That's why you're worthy of our praise. That's why we come to you today with our deepest longings because you are at the other end of the cord. You can satisfy what we need. Awaken our hearts to that hope, Lord. That's where we want to go in Jesus' name. Amen.